All right, let's turn to our scripture reading for this morning. Uh, we're in Revelation chapter 17, and we're going to read through the whole chapter. Revelation chapter 17. Uh, let's give our attentive listening uh, to the reading of God's word. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over the power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put, in, put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over the royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for always giving us your word, uh, even though uh, sometimes that word is not what we want, but what we need. And, and thank you for, for that word today. Um, give us wisdom to discern how we need this, and uh, take our eyes off of whether we like it as much, uh, but help us to be wise and, and see what it is that you are showing us uh, and truly receive uh, this word, not as it's coming from man, but coming from you. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Um, 
If you look at verse 1, you can see uh, this is a continuation of the vision you looked at previously uh, of the vision of the seven bowls. It's the same angel who had the seven bowls now revealing another vision uh, containing a few more symbolic uh, images. And that's the great prostitute sitting on the beast and Babylon the great. And these are both uh, subject, as it says here, uh, to God's final great judgment. So the Bible's justice mentality, if you will, is uh, with great sin, with great wickedness, comes great moral accountability, okay? Uh, There would be a great judgment for great Babylon. There would be a great judgment for the great prostitute. The question is, what are these symbols symbolizing? What do do they mean? Now, uh, one very helpful key here is in verse 7, it tells us they are one and the same mystery, it doesn't say they're multiple mysteries. Um, and that's a helpful interpretive key that helps us then approach these symbols as a whole instead of needlessly you know, dividing them up and trying to identify the, the woman as one thing and the Babylon as another thing. They are one and the same. And, and what I will try to do is um, go through this by you know, keeping them together and show you the common threads that, that are found in both of these symbols. All right? common themes. First, um, there's a personal theme we should address. Second, there's a systemic theme we should also address. And lastly, I'll close with the gospel theme that the angel closes with, okay? Personal, systemic, gospel, these three, all right? That's the outline. So point number one, let's start with the the personal theme here. Uh, First, we have to go back to the origin story of, of Babylon, okay? Babylon actually finds its origin in Genesis chapter 11, uh, the famous story of the Tower of Babel, or Babel. Babel and Babylon are the, the same name in Greek and Hebrew. And if you remember that story, right, the people of the world were united in one language. They were of one mind, and they all said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth, okay? We may make a name for ourselves. Forget the name in heaven. We will be the the glorious name. And it was this kind of vanity and um, uh, pride, self-worship that led to their ultimate downfall and um, dispersion. So Babylon, from its very origin, right, at the very basic level, uh, was a symbol of vanity, false worship, uh, idolatry, okay? And, and the, whenever the Bible uses Babylon, either as a symbol or, or even in literal terms, historical terms, it's often referring to this kind of idolatry and false worship. And that's very consistent with the, the, the symbol of the prostitute that appears here as well because that's an equally important symbol of false worship in the scriptures, in the, especially in the Old Testament. And it, it, you could even argue uh, it's an even more accurate symbol um, for false worship because it really gets to the heart of the issue. Uh, the, the symbol of the prostitute and her sexual immorality communicates something a bit more on a personal and relational level. And when it comes to idolatry and false worship to God, to Yahweh, it was always personal and relational. Um, so if you take a look at verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. The, the main problem raised here is that the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. And for one, that's certainly speaking to 
literal sexual sins of every kind. But it's more than that. It's more of a symbol, symbolic indictment on spiritual unfaithfulness, um, spiritual infidelity. And you see this language in, in uh, the, the major prophets and the minor prophets, Jeremiah, Hosea, Isaiah, Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 16, there's an interesting passage I want to share with you as an example of this. It says there, you also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And that's God's way of saying, um, you took the, the diamond ring I placed on your finger when I married you, and you re-gifted it to your secret lover that you're, you've been having an affair with behind my back. And so uh, this image of the unfaithful bride, the symbol of the unfaithful bride, ever since the Old Testament was God's way of pointing the Israelites uh, towards their guilt of turning away from their God who saved them from enslavement and established them as a prosperous nation who are now taking all the things that God's blessed them with and worshiping false gods. And so, so this is what's sort of allude, being alluded to here in, in this vision in Revelation as well. This is not speaking about sexual sin per se, although it includes that, but more broadly uh, to idolatry and, and false worship. And, and before that starts sounding really Christianese, what that means is false worship idolatry really means is giving your heart and your life over to some allegiance other than God. Um, the word of God tells us we were created to worship him, our maker, but when we give ourselves over to things that were created instead of the creator, the Bible says that is spiritual unfaithfulness. It's even equivalent to spiritual prostitution. And I wondered, why, why not just stay with spiritual adultery, uh, spiritual unfaithfulness or infidelity? Why go as far as to say this is spiritual prostitution? Why would God do that? And uh, I think one possible reason for that is that God is highlighting a particular kind of false worship here. It's the kind of false worship that says, my marriage to God, right, given, I'm married to him, but my marriage to him is a non-committal, non-permanent, non-binding, open type of relationship. As long as I am paying my dues, uh, and he's giving me some good stuff in return, it's okay for me to functionally have another lover. If, if you think about it, right, um, that kind of marriage would be a sham, wouldn't it? Like if it was literally a, a marriage. Um, it's a, it would be a false intimacy uh, bought with favors and good works and you, know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours type of transaction. Prostitution essentially is false intimacy bought with money. And false worship, God is saying, is the same thing. Uh, it's this false sense of intimacy with God bought with your obedience and good works, your tithes, offerings, service to the church. Um, we can have this false sense of intimacy with the divine, thinking, you know, I don't have to really love him wholeheartedly. I mean, we're married. I don't, I don't have to go beyond that and be totally and wholeheartedly committed to this one person. 
Um, as long as I'm paying my dues and get a little something in return, functionally, I can go and love someone else. Um, and what do you, and the, the $64,000 question is, what does God call that? Right? The correct answer, spiritual prostitution. Are, are self-professing Christians capable of this? Absolutely. You know, uh, that's why this vision is given to the church. Right? This, this vision is not given to uh, pagans primarily. This letter was sent to the church. Um, this is a warning for the people who think they belong in uh, New Jerusalem, the city of God, to stop uh, and, and think, consider, are you actually living in Babylon in reality? Uh, because so often that's the reality. And he's saying uh, there's a judgment for that. Right? Um, the, the symbol of the, the great Babylon, the great prostitute, is, is therefore meant to reveal something on a very intimate, personal level. It, it reveals whether your relationship with God is in fact a committed, wholehearted marriage. Um, or is it a sham? What's a what's a what's a true marriage? It's 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 permanent. It's committed. It's faithful. It's affectionate. It it involves hard work, devotion, obedience, learning and growing into the other person. Is that happening with God? And and just as a marriage would define every area of your life, is God defining and dictating every area of your life and your identity, like a true marriage? Right, and uh, He's not. <laughs> Um, he's not going easy on us. He's going straight to the point. Um, that sort of marriage with God is, is not true intimacy. Okay, I mean, we would say if, if there's a husband who, who says he loves his wife, but he's constantly cheating on his wife or he's addicted to pornography, that, that marriage is a sham. Uh, in the same way, those who say they love God, I, I trust him, I believe in him, I'm a Christian, but functionally, they're given to all sorts of other allegiances that demand more of their time, more of their attention, more of their energy, more of their passions. They don't, they don't, they're not really married to him. They're not really married to God, and that's what God is showing us. Uh, discern on, you really have to discern on a personal level, are you committed to him? Uh, is he your, your everything? Is he truly your, the lover of your soul? And this kind of self-examination has been, right, all throughout the book of Revelation. The theme is, is persisting through these images as well. Okay, that's the first point. And here's the second point, uh, the, the more systemic theme. Um, let's look at verse 3. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it has seven heads, ten horns. Now, if you uh, recall from previous chapters we looked at, the same description of the beast was given in chapters 12 and 13. The beast emerged from the sea back in chapter 13, uttered blasphemies against God, false accusations against God, um, falsely accusing them, which symbolizes persecution against God's people. And in, in chapter um, uh, 12, it appeared with seven heads and ten horns, which symbolizes sort of its sociopolitical uh, and economic sway and um, its influence on everyone and against, used against, um, the people of God. Verse 10 in our passage mentions seven kings, again, saying, uh, five of seven have fallen, right? So that leaves two, one is and one is to come. Um, and some theologians have tried to pinpoint who exactly these kings are, like, like in a literal historical kind of matter. 
Um, but given that every time we looked at the number seven in the book of Revelation, it's been a symbolic number, right, representing completion, wholeness. Um, this, this reference here is likewise also symbolic. And, and given that you know, five of the seven have come, it's, it's intended to tell us that we're closer to seven than we're closer to one. The, the end is imminent. That's probably what this is referring to. It can't be that, oh, the woman is symbolic, the beast is symbolic, Babylon is symbolic, the seven kings is literal. That would be a weird way to interpret this text. This is all uh, symbols pointing to the same theme. Um, and there's more I can say about this, but I, I'm making a judgment call here, and, and for the sake of time, I'm, I'm, I want to highlight this for the sake of this point as well. Verse 12 mentions the ten horns, and they're the ten kings who will receive authority for one hour, together with the beast, they're of one mind, and verse 13, 14 says that is to wage war on the land. Um, there are two interpretations of this generally. What, is, what are the ten kings or the ten horns? Um, and what I want to do is give you both and uh, make a case for why I think we should use both and not uh, pit one against the other. One interpretation of the ten horns and ten kings is um, these are the coming and going, this symbolize the coming and going political and economic powers throughout history. Uh, that while they captivate people's attention and allegiances there during their specific time and context, which is brief, it's symbolizing the one hour, they're really short-lived and their glories fade wither like grass. Okay, so think Roman Empire. Um, what kind of comfort this would have been for the Christians receiving this during uh, Emperor uh, Nero's reign, for example. There's the Greek empires. There's the modern, more modern sort of European empires. And then modern, uh, today, we have these superpower countries. All of that um, will pass away. And all of that has been used by the beast to, to persecute the church at some point in some way. They come against God's people by sociopolitical or economic means. That could be one understanding of the, the horns. Okay, there, there's one. Um, here's another interpretation that I think is equally valid, and that is the ten horns refer to something less visible and more, more subtle, but all around us in a systemic way, such as education, the arts, entertainment, our vocational lives. Um, the beast, according to this interpretation, can use these things as horns to hurt, oppress, mislead um, God's people. Take, distract them from worshiping God and living on his mission, in his mission. So they, they would make a case like, for example, in today's vocational context or academic context, it's, it's normal for any Christian to feel as though to be devoted to work and be uh, any measure successful at work, you, you have to neglect worship or you're at least tempted to. Neglect uh, godliness, uh, neglect rest, Sabbath rest, neglect going on God's mission, uh, his great commission. Right, so if that's happening, then that could be a horn that, that the enemy is using against you. Um, another example of this could be uh, something that really is all around us that we don't really think much about, and that is uh, the culture of entertainment. Entertainment. Everywhere you look, uh, there's an opportunity to entertain you. Uh, we live in a culture of entertainment overload, right? We're co constantly overstimulated. Um, you, you, you scroll a few times, and the, the, the next entertaining thing that happens in Bangladesh, you can see. Right? Uh, it's 
entertainment overload, overstimulation, could that be a horn that affects the church? And I'm not talking so much about this kind of this kind of culture war between you know secular Hollywood and and you know, their values versus the church. I mean, uh, what do you expect from from secular people other than secularism? I think that's that's a given. But can this seep into the church and affect it more from the inside? Because that will be a bigger problem. Is is there a way in which entertainment culture has taken over parts of the church so that a, a good number of Christians would think things like worship? and discipleship, fellowship, mission, sanctification, ought to be fun. Uh, and if they're not, I'm, maybe I'm at the wrong church. Now, you could be at the wrong church. I'm not, I'm not justifying right, every, every church being right. Um, but could there be a bad reason for leaving a church? Right? They're not entertaining enough for me. Yeah, I think that, I think that could also be a reason. That could be another horn, right? And so these are all valid interpretations. My point is this, uh, the co- what's the common thing about them? They're all systemically present. Um, they don't affect just one individual, they're all around us and they affect us in a cultural and societal level. And so in that sense, I think we should respect all these interpretations and watch out for all of them, right? They all communicate something systemic in nature. Combine this with the very important image of the, the many waters in verse 1. Um, verse 15 explains what that means. Verse 15 says, the many waters represent the whole world, right? the multitudes, nations, and languages. What does that mean, right? practically? It means coming under the beast's waters, influence, can make you feel like fish in the water. It's just all around you. Uh, the, the beast's hold over the world, control of the world, is that systemic and, and permeating through um, everything we touch. It's like in the air we breathe. Um, you, you can't not be in it. Well, you, you, you're called to not be of it, but it, there's no way you, it won't touch you. It will touch you because it's all around you. Um, but do we notice it? Do we see it? No, we just, right? I mean, the, the fish doesn't think about water. Right, it's just all around. And that's, it, that's why it makes perfect sense why the angel says in verse 9, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Wisdom. This is not a vision uh, you can understand without wisdom. It, it's not something you just see with your physical eyes or just uh, inter, uh, understand with your intellect. You have to receive God's divine help, wisdom, to see it. And, and the only way uh, we'll therefore somehow believe and see and live differently than the rest of the world, somehow um, go against the, this, this current in, in the water, uh, is if we receive this wisdom from God. Right. That's the only way we will swim upstream when everyone's going downstream. And, and this does not mean, you know, okay, check yourself out of the world uh, and, and disengage with everything in the world. That's not wisdom's intention. You don't need wisdom if you do that. Here, but here's what this does mean. Uh, exercising wisdom does mean at some point in your Christian journey, you got to be able to take a stand and say, uh, as for me and my house, uh, we disagree with the world emphatically on this. Do you have this, whatever this is? 
when it comes to this, we disagree with the rest of the world. Do you have that? Uh, it takes wisdom for us to discern that, call that out, and self-identify as something else. Examples are required. Okay, here. Uh, is there a way in which the world is systemically preaching to us the message that money is all we need? And if you have enough money and, and you know, enough money to buy you the things that you need, then, then that's when you have peace. That's when your future has hope. Uh, that's when you can raise your head high and walk into a room. You have identity. Does the world preach to you that? Absolutely, right? Not from a pulpit. Uh, every commercial, every billboard, every ad that pops up on your phone preaches to you that your, well, your well-being, your flourishing, your happiness depend on your spending money to get what they're selling you. And, and underneath that is a very um, enticing and comforting even belief that you know, this money, it will save me. Uh, this money will secure me from foreseeable threats in the future. This spending or this saving will give me peace and hope for my future like no one else, nothing else ever can. Um, how normal is it to believe that in this world? I would say it's utterly normal to believe that in this world. Actually, if you don't believe that, you are the, you're the abnormal one. <laughs> you're the fish out of water. Somehow you have contentment, constant thanksgiving, uh, in spite of your lacking. Somehow you, you're generous when there's shortage. Somehow you tithe, somehow you give to missions, somehow you give thanks, somehow you remain worshipful. That's not normal. <laughs> but according to scripture, that's wise. This calls for a mind with wisdom. This vision cannot be understood if you're not wise. Right, to the worshipers of the beast, personal wealth it's dogma. It's doc essential doctrine. But to the saints, self-serving wealth is the blasphemy. Blasphemy against God, our, our true provider, our true savior, our true comforter, our true source of peace and security and identity. Essentially, the lie coming from the beast here is your primary needs will be met through finances or your career advancements, your promotions, not God. So if you follow me instead, or the beast, uh, you, get all, you, you get all these things. That's the normative, natural way of the world. That's the water we swim in. It's the system all around us. And, and there's only one way we can see through that and stand against it, and that is God's wisdom. Um, verse 6 says, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And uh, there's a scene straight out of a horror movie, if there ever was one. Um, there's two ways to see this, uh, that there are two kinds of blood here. The blood of the saints who fall victim to the woman, and the, the saints who resist the woman and become martyrs of Jesus. Um, and in that sense, right, this is, this is also to warn the church, right, many have fallen to this, fallen prey to this. 
She's drunk with the blood of the saints. Right. Uh, some Christians, I mean, many Christians are dropping like flies when it comes to uh, this temptation. Even the Apostle John, verse 6, says, When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Right. And marvel can mean either finding something impressive or finding something to be fearsome and overwhelming. And I'm not sure what exactly John is feeling here, but uh, it could be a bit of both. On the one hand, he's marveling because it's kind of marvelous. All the, all the riches of the world, all the economic power, the, the, the political power the world has ever seen, and at the same time, it's kind of daunting and overwhelming to think, how on earth is anybody supposed to resist this? How does a fish resist water? Right. This is no small adversary, and so he marvels. He, he's a little dumbfounded. He's, he's, he's perhaps in awe. Uh, he's speechless. He has no answer. But the angel gives him an answer. The angel reassures him that there is something even greater than the woman, something even greater than Babylon, something even greater than the great judgment of God, and that's the mercy of God, the gospel of God. And that's the last point. The angel leaves us with the gospel, the good news at the end of all this. Uh, Verse 7, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns. Okay. The angel says, why, why do you marvel? Don't marvel. Don't be impressed with this. Don't find this mystifying. Let me demystify this for you and show you um, how you can break the spell and why this is not that impressive after all. It's, it's almost like somebody's telling you, um, you know that, that magician's trick? I'll show you how it's done. And then once you see how it's done, every time you see the same trick, it's no longer impressive. He's saying, I'll, I'll show you the trick. I'll, I'll break the spell and demystify. He goes on to say this in verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. This is headed to destruction, not eternity, destruction and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast so those who worship the beast in the end will be the ones marveling to see the beast not you whose names are written in the book of life not you who, who now realize all this is simply headed to destruction in the end and will be no more. It's not something to marvel at, something to lament and feel pity for. And the angel contrasts that image of short-lived destruction of the beast and the woman, the Babylon, with the, the names written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. You, you can't unfound this. This is eternal. We'll be there in the end. 
And the names of the, right, we looked at the book of life before. These are names of people who have been forgiven, adopted, loved by God. That is your marvel. Do not marvel at this. This is what breaks the mystery. This is what breaks the spell, right? Uh, all that symbolized by uh, Babylon, the woman, the beast, short-lived, but one hour, right? They'll last but one hour. They'll be destroyed, along with those who worship the beast. But God and the people of God, who have been called and chosen by God, as it says in verse 14, right, meaning those who have been given mercy, they will, they will be forever with their God in Jerusalem. The, the good news is this, that the lamb who has mercy is greater, he's better, more superior than the beast. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. So worship this lamb. Marvel at this lamb. Uh, this line in verse 14 is, is probably the best summary of all this. Right? The lamb will conquer. The, the lamb will conquer them. Because he is king of kings and lord of lords. Right? And, and it, it leaves us here in verse 14 with the million-dollar question. Right? Here's a, here's a million-dollar question. Are you with him, the lamb? Are you with him? Because those with him are the ones who are called and chosen and, and the faithful. Are you, in this moment, with him, found in his mercy, his love, and therefore in his book of life. If, if you've been so called, you know, right, you've been chosen from the foundation of the world. You, you couldn't have merited this by your, by your good works or obedience. This is sheer mercy and grace. Are you worshiping God daily for his marvelous grace, his never-ending mercy? Because that's how you, as saints of God, people of God, and you and I, that's how we cling to eternity, by clinging to his eternal mercy. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Do you believe this? Are you living and tapping into this eternal mercy every day? Are you striving to? Here's the thing. If, you, uh, if you're not living in the mercy and love of God each and every day, right? then the, the presence of God in your life will be the presence of a moral employer that you're performing for. And you're, you're, you're seeking to please with your performance and your goodness so you can get paychecks from him. You, you get something back in return. At least you don't get punished by him. If that is the mentality with which you approach God and live with God in your life, uh, Whenever you come across judgment passages, you will have nothing but fear and confusion. Because deep down, we know we can never do enough to merit righteousness. But if your day-to-day -day interaction with God is with the lamb who was slain on your behalf, right, slain so that you would live in his death, you will, live, you will find life, uh, then, then you will be assured of this love that is going to stay with you forever, the love of God, love of your Savior, the love of the Lamb who conquers the beast. 
and you will know your name is written on his heart. And you will live in this good news. You will make this good news the highest priority of your life, of your day, for you and your family. You make this the reason you, you get out of bed every day. You make knowing him in his mercy and his grace and his love your daily bread. Then you would know I've been called, I've been chosen, I stand with the Lamb, and therefore I also must be faithful to the Lamb. Uh, take a moment today, sometime today, in, in, in closing and in application. Um, consider this, this personal matter that we, we talked about. Am I committed to this spiritual marriage? Am I all in? Or is, this, or is my marriage to God a sham? Really think about that. Uh, second, right, on the more systemic level, am I just mindlessly consuming everything that's out there? Or am I, at some point, discerning what's healthy to consume and what's not healthy to consume? Okay. Uh, I shared this with <laughs> some of you a few weeks ago, how... Um, I sincerely regret and have since repented of wasting all my hours in watching Game of Thrones. I, I do not know what va single valuable thing I walked away uh, from the show, but, but I can see how it might have, could have harmed me. Right? That, that was my, my sin in that moment, lack of discernment and judgment. Right? And I'm not trying to judge all those who watch the show. I'm just saying, what's, when do you use whether in retrospect or in the present, discernment. Um, so, so at some point, you're saying, I'm, I'm a fish going against the current. If the whole world is, a, is, is forward, I can still be against it. At, at what point do you, do you say that? Consider that. Lastly, um, remember the gospel. Remember the lamb. Consider the lamb and marvel at the lamb and give thanks. Give thanks to the Lamb who's written your name in his book of life and rejoice in him. Find the comfort that, that you really long for in your heart in the Lamb and his book of life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we um, thank you for showing us this vision. Uh, pray, Lord, for your wisdom now to, to be with us so that uh, we will uh, carry with us what what you want us to, to remember. And um, Lord, would you press these truths and um, words into our hearts? Help us to live it. Uh, help us to go beyond professing it with our lips to, to living it out with our hands and our feet and our daily choices. Uh, Lord, help us to find our, our hope in life and in death, our, our ultimate peace, our security identity in the Lamb and in nothing else, so we would be identified as your worshipers who have left Babylon uh, and are looking forward to the new Jerusalem, the city of God, the kingdom of heaven. Lord, make us uh, such people. Uh, continue to guide us through this uh, journey in the wilderness and help us lead us home. We pray in your son's name. Amen.